I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, Donald Trump is pushing ahead with his protectionist agenda. He doesn't want people or capital or produce coming in from overseas if he can do it locally. So is it plausible? The world does seem to be heading down a more protectionist road, doesn't it? Not a bad thing, says Steve Keen. And we'll explore that on this week's Debunking Economics podcast. Welcome along. Well, Steve, there were uh, over 17 million manufacturing jobs in the United States in 2000. In the 10 years that followed, China joined the World Trade Organization and the U.S. lost about a third of those jobs. Obviously, most of them went to China because they were cheap. That's why Donald Trump is now taking aim at China and promising to bring the jobs back. Although, you know what? Is he going to be successful on that? Some jobs are never going to come back. Uh, I'm sorry if you are watching this while scanning newspapers looking for jobs in a typing pool. Those like my mum used to work in. Those jobs are gone. They're not going to come back. And so maybe uh, Donald Trump is is chasing something that's just not going to happen. Those jobs are not going to come back because guess what? Those jobs don't exist anymore. Yeah, um, that's you know a common feature of development over time in capitalism has been we continuously replace human labor with manufacture with machinery input and the simple reason mm. for that uh, is something I've learned by doing my work on energy uh, if the, the labor has to be expensive enough to be worth replacing with a machine but once you've replaced yeah. it with the machine then you can increase the energy input to that machine by development over time and get a level of output for the cost of inputs that is far higher than you could get just with labor alone. So my, my favorite right. example goes right back to the spinning jenny, uh, the very first major uh, invention of the Industrial Revolution. And that was a, you know, a spinning wheel to spin wool into yarn, uh, was with single person operate a single wheel. And then I've forgotten the name of the manufacturer in Scotland who invented the spinning jenny, but that had six wheels attached. So you had one worker mm. spinning six wheels. Uh, and then, it wasn't the Singer, was it? They made sewing machines. <clears throat> no, I think it was really well before Singer. I'm not sure, but take a look and find out. Mm. Um, but that that was profitable to do in Scotland because the wages in Scotland were that much higher uh, that if you got rid of six workers and you replaced them with the cost yeah. of buying the machine, you came out and ahead. And then that's just been a continuous ever since then. As however you try to measure the, the amount of machines versus labour, the number of machines has risen dramatically over that time. So Donald Trump might have a point then. You, you bring back manufacturing, more manufacturing to the United States, but you're actually not bringing back jobs. All you're doing is bringing back the machines so that they are that, so that they're produced locally, not necessarily helping employment, but presumably creating a benefit to the economy, provided those machines are producing stuff cheaper than outsourcing them to China. Well, I mean, the, the outsourcing has always been a bit of a con job. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, the, the management costs go up. We might reduce your labor costs because, you know, yeah. maybe you go right back to the 1980s when the whole uh, outsourcing to China thing really began. Uh, and I think I kept on I mentioning, I was in the Shenzhen free trade zone when they were still laying the concrete of the place. So I saw 
uh, what it was like in the mm. very very early days. At that stage, I'm not I can't I don't have the exact figures in my top of my head, but you might have been paying an American worker say five dollars an hour. Uh, you'd be paying a Chinese worker five dollars a month. So there was an enormous wage differential that the Chinese were offering to the Americans to encourage them to move over, uh, and and that's what led to that huge uh, process of growth. But um, now that wage differential has been largely consumed, the workers, it's not like, it's the difference is there, it's not in terms of months, it's in terms of days. Yeah. Uh, but at the yeah. same time, I, 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 the, the amount of supervision that's necessary to get things back in the, the shape you want them, the length of the supply chain and things that can go wrong yeah. with people who didn't Shipping design. costs, Huge, all that yeah. sort of stuff. So, yeah, exactly. You've got to, so uh, all, mm. Yeah, the cost advantage is gone. So American corporations... Yeah. Won't be lose if you tried to do this to them back in the nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety. You might have well found yourself to being a target of a stray bullet uh, from a from a grassy yeah. knoll somewhere. Doing it now is not going to be particularly disadvantageous to American companies. Right, but if if the future is more automation and uh, a lot more is is about how things are created by machines, <clears throat> then the big question is, you know, who creates the machines? And you'd be nuts, wouldn't you, to say, well, okay, we are going to produce something for our own domestic industry if somebody else can produce that machine elsewhere so if germany produces a machine that can create the whatever the next great thing is why try and recreate it yourself so you might be protectionist in saying well we're going to produce it locally because that shortens the supply chain and we're close to markets makes a great deal of sense but actually if you if you try and produce the capital yourself following protectionism, aren't you just going to push up the price of capital goods, which is going to push up the end product for you? Is this Phil Dobley or Warren Mosley? <laughs> well, you know, I'm just a, I'm a devil's advocate. Indeed, That's what I'm indeed the devil here on this one. Yeah, look, I mean, that that is sort of, in some ways, echoes the one part of MMT that I'm categorically opposed to, this idea that exports are a cost and imports are a benefit. And if you can import something more cheaply from overseas, go ahead and do it. And even better, if you send them pieces of paper and they accept the pieces of paper and you get back machinery, wacky do, you're on a winner. Um, that, to me, is the same level of sophistication as saying uh, that lying in a beanbag is a benefit and going to the gym is a cost. Uh, so the person who lies in the beanbag is better off than the person who goes to the gym. Uh, do that for 40 mm. or 50, for, you know, 40 or 50 months, and the guy with the beanbag is going to have a beanbag body, and the person with the gym is going to have well, a well-honed body. It's, it's, it's the, in, the development over time is an essential feature of a, of a functional capitalist right. economy. If you try sure. to import it, but, you're not but, going to but, develop your own industry, you're not going to develop your own knowledge base. But for, but for everything, so are you saying that, for example, somebody uh, should now the UK should say, well, let's stop, uh, let's stop using Facebook. Let's create our own Facebook and our and our own Google. Multinational technologies. Then, then you have uh, you, you, there are some things you simply can't do that with. I mean, once you have uh, a, a, a resource. Well, I'd like to look at the competition between Zoom and Skype, for example. Zoom has come out of nowhere to some extent to be mm. become one of the dominant forms for the sort of communication you and I are doing now. So you can break into a new industry. But if everybody's using Facebook, and I loathe Facebook, I think you know that, um, mm. with, with Facebook, is, you know, create a competitor to Facebook, well, good luck. You, you know, you, you, but in terms of, so for example, uh, whether you should produce your own vehicle, um, yeah. If you if you uh, 
your country like all the you- machinery all the machinery to to so and it doesn't it get down to like for example i think it's some i met somebody from australia who said that australia had invented the uh bit of software that determines whether the right number of banknotes were issued out of a teller machine at the right at, at, at the right time so you didn't overpay mm. someone invented that there's no point in somebody else in the united states saying now that's been created we need to do our our own version of that. That's been done. So you just buy the technology because it already exists on the planet, surely. And surely the same thing applies to any machine. Like if there's a, a, a part of the, the car manufacturing process that, that can be produced and bought by everybody, why try and recreate it uh, in a way that might not be as well and will cost you more in, in the long Sometimes run? Sometimes there's logic to that. I'm with Warren on this. Are you <laughs> I'm with, with Warren, Warren yeah. on this one. No, I mean uh, – Capitalism is, if, if anything is going to give capitalism an advantage over any other social system, it's the extent to which it spurs innovation. And mm. the, the innovation never gets to the stage saying, oh, you're better at that than I am, therefore I won't try to do what you're doing. Innovation works on, that's interesting how you do that. I think I've got an idea how to do it better, and I'm going to try to get ahead of you. And uh, the, the innovation then... Sp- spreads in the sense that once you have innovation in one sector, you need innovations in other sectors and so on. And countries that innovate the fastest are the ones that are going to be the successful ones over time. If you keep on saying, oh, we should leave that for somebody else to do, uh, then you end up with a yeah. hollowed out manufacturing sector like Australia itself has now, uh, where I think Australia, in terms of the uh, index of economic complexity from Harvard University, rates about 80th in the world and is below Senegal in terms of the complexity the products can actually produce. The successful countries are the ones that actually attempt to build as much as they can locally and are always trying to innovate ahead of the other competitors. You've got issues about economies of scale and whether it's feasible to have an industry in particular economies, which is a major barrier. But if you don't have the economies of scale as a handicap, an insurmountable one, then I think you're better to try to industrialise and develop at home. Well, let's. I mean, no one's going to take on Facebook in its in in its current form. But say that uh, there was a there's a belief. So maybe I can almost feel this is a bad example, even before I give it. But say there was a, a belief that yeah, we you know we need to have a UK version of Facebook. Uh, you, you're not going to be able to to establish that without those economies of scale. And to get those economies of scale, you've you've either got to stop as many people subscribing to Facebook in in the UK, which means some form of legislation, or you've got to put a pile of cash into this business. And if you're talking about, you know, physical goods, that's where you start introducing tariffs. So you talk about protectionism through tariff barriers, whether they're monetary tariff barriers or uh, regulatory tariff barriers to try, you know, which is, we've talked about this before, which is what, how Japan managed to develop its its industrial base by protectionism early on uh, to stop imports so that it could uh, perfect the goods that it was then going to export. But uh, and and in a way that's sort of like Donald Trump is doing it with tariff barriers as well. But is that is that going to work in this day and age? Well, and and how it, do you imp- how because you've got to pick the industries that you're going to impose those tariff barriers on. You get back again to governments picking winners. Not necessarily. You get back to governments in encouraging local and in, 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 uh, 
industrialists to innovate. I mean, the, the, the classic book on this front is actually by Michael Hudson called America's uh, Protectionist Takeoff. And when he looked at the data for the 19th century and saw why did America go from being predominantly an agricultural, rural country economy to a manufacturing powerhouse, it was largely because tariffs were put up. I mean, you can't import the European products anymore, the British ones in particular, of course. You've got to make them locally. And then you had uh, not just the the, you know, the, the spur to local production coming out of that, but a large and growing market to sell into. So you've got the economies of scale as well. And, and again, when Danny Roddick has done his work on what actually has led to successful cases of industrialization, it's almost always been a country protecting in general its local industry, making it more expensive to import and therefore saying, okay, we have now given you a price reason to try to innovate domestically. And again, like the example I gave of the spinning jenny, the reason the spinning jenny occurred in Scotland rather than France, for example, was that it was actually worth your while to pay the cost of buying a spinning jenny as a manufacturer of, of clothing uh, rather than hiring six workers because the wages of six workers were very high in Scotland. The same calculations in France, it wasn't worth buying the machine because six workers were cheaper than a skinning spinning jenny. So sometimes putting up the costs is, is to everybody in general as a spur to innovation. And that's the major thing you want to achieve in terms of, to achieve economic growth over time. Where growth is right, still but if you, while you while you're going while you're going through that transition, isn't there a danger though that uh, you're you're propping up particular industries, you're pushing up the price for for people buying goods which have uh, uh, these protectionist measures in place, that you actually increase the income disparity in the country because you've got those people who are manufacturing stuff locally, but you've pushed up prices, so uh, those people who are the, the workers, not the manufacturers. Uh, they're paying more for everything. Well, often actually uh, a part of that protectionism is actually higher domestic wages too. Um, it, it, mm. it's, a question, it's a question of, of, of stimulating innovation and getting investment to occur domestically And because what actually the main engine of growth is not specialisation. It's, it's investment in, in industrialization and technological development over time. So the, the mindset we've got from neoclassical economists is all about efficiently using what we have now. Have a certain set of yeah. resources which can be moved from one section to another. You can easily transform a blast furnace into a sheep dip. All it takes is a bit of magic, magic, which of course we all produce our own magic, uh, and then reallocate that. And again, you get a one or two percent increase in efficiency of what you've currently got. When you look at the real world, a that you cannot turn a blast furnace into a sheep dip. You turn it to a rust bucket instead, which is where the term the rust the rust belt came from America with the, with the reallocation of production to China. And you also, uh, you know, you 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 will cause. The growth over time when it actually happens is courtesy of a high rate of investment in the country that's growing more rapidly. And that, that's the real yeah. trigger. How do you bring up the high rate of investment? How do you spur the innovation? And those are questions yeah. which are orthogonal to the whole idea of trade well, policy. Well, very often, obviously, it's foreign investment. So do you allow foreign investment? Or is there, just doesn't that create, you know, if you've got a situation where you've got a, a, a domestic industry producing something which is uh, replicating, maybe doing it better than something that's done in another part of the world, but it's owned through Chinese investment, have you actually gained much? Not much because then the profits get repatriated. This is one reason when yeah. you look at the, the theory of comparative advantage and, and, and Ricardo's original development of it as well. Uh, the, you presume that your income to capital uh, and income to labour remain in the country where the work is done. If you have the income being uh, 
transferred between countries. You can no longer say the benefit went to the social class in that particular country. Um, so one, one essential prop of the theory of comparative advantage is the immobility of labor and capital. Well, duh, labor is moderately mobile. Capital, of course, with the free capital market is incredibly mobile. So the profits being earned in China, a lot of them were originally repatriated back to America. What China's been doing on a grand scale is saying at least half those profits never have a damn sight more than half are going to stay in China, thanks very much. And they have to be used by Chinese capitalists to invest and develop Chinese industry, uh, which is why, I mean, China's industry, uh, when, you, when you see some of the technology coming out of that country, is miles ahead of the Americans. And that's one reason why we're getting involved in this war. The Americans have been outdone by the Chinese. Uh, and they were trying to get even. Right. And they're trying to get even through tariffs, by and large, other restrictions on trade. So, I mean, are you an out-and-out protectionist? Do you think we all should be doing that? Should we Should we have, should every trading, every country or at least trading bloc be saying, yes, we're going to have substantial tariffs so that we, uh, so that we produce locally? I, and we should be stop, and we should be stopping foreign investment or putting some sort of constraint on I'm it? I'm certainly, again, foreign, foreign investment. Uh, I'd, I'd want to see some very good example reasons as to why you should have a foreign rather than a domestic capitalist um, no. building different industries. So you just stop it altogether? That's what I'd, I'd be reducing it by an order of magnitude because on the, mm. the scale, the, the, this belief in specialisation, comparative advantage, and the idea you've got to import capital from overseas has, has been imposed upon what would have otherwise happened. Uh, we've, we've, you know, uh, the, the anti-protectionists, the, the, anti the free trade case, they've won the political debate hands down. And what we've got is an, actually an enticement to that sort of uh, level of uh, distributing, of, of reallocation of production. Um, but in fact, when you look at the real world, it's, it's the countries that did the protection, first of all, and that grew their own industrial base and that are growing despite this, that have been the winners out of trade. Germany, South mm. Korea... Uh, uh, Taiwan, Japan, and China. China didn't have protection so much, but they made sure they, they hung on to the domestic benefits by requiring any yeah. foreign investor to have a Chinese partner who had half the ownership of the company with zero money invested. Um, you know, the, the, the China's done a, a rather different pattern to what Japan and South Korea and Germany and Taiwan all did beforehand. But it's the countries that promote industrial domestic investment. Industri they're the ones that done well out of free trade. Yeah, well, then we can't all do that, can we? Of course, we can't all be net exporters, which is what those countries yeah. are. Uh, so if we, you know, things have got to even out. So how do you? I mean, they're successful because of their exports. I mean, no, they would Japan would not be as successful an economy if it was producing domestically just for its domestic market. Similarly for China, although China's obviously got a big population, so it's got more potential to do that. Germany certainly couldn't. So they would be in a, in, in a sorry place without, uh, without exports. So we can't all follow that path. We, we can't all follow export industrialization, but we can try to spur domestic investment and domestic innovation. And that's what I'd, I'd rather see the focus on promoting innovation um, and investment rather than promoting trade and specialisation. Right, but you're talking, about a, you're talking about protecting so that you get economies of scale, presumably to export stuff, though. So you, you'd still see a role. Not necessarily. No, no, no. Mm. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, what, what Keynes is trying to design with the Bancor system, 
uh, a large part of that was to prevent large trade imbalances. So his, he didn't want to see uh, trade surpluses or deficits exceeding 2% of GDP. Now, we're, look, we're seeing trade surpluses for a country like uh, Germany and Japan of the order of 10% of GDP, and that therefore means corresponding deficits you know, for, for the rest of the world. Uh, and, that, and that then is for, you know, financed by international financial transactions, which he was also opposed to. Um, so we, we have a very distorted picture, and I'd rather push the balance back in favour of domestic production and domestic finance and get away from the internationalisation that we've seen. So, so, I, yeah. so British roads should be full of uh, Bentleys and less Toyotas. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the extent to which you've run the manufacturing sector down there um, mm. is, is, you know, is going to be devastating for the future because now you realise, for example, if we, if we find we have to drastically reduce the extent of a shipping of shipping goods between different countries because of the cost that implies simply in carbon dioxide generation uh, by the by the, um, the the container fleets of the world, uh, then you've got to have the capacity to produce them, and you've lost those skilled uh, both the skilled workers and the the capacity to produce the machine tools you need. So, uh, of course, you know the, the the issue as well with international trade is is how some countries subsidise. So. I grew up in the north of England during the uh, during the coal miners' strike, and uh, one of the big angsts was that uh, Margaret Thatcher was closing down the, the the coal industry in in England at the same time as importing heavily subsidised coal from Germany. I mean, the German state pumped three hundred and forty billion euros or so into into coal mining between the seventies and right up to two thousand and sixteen. So uh, even even though the uh, European Union talks about you know not subsidising Industries, the Germans were going at it, hammer and tongs, and the Americans have a similar sort of thing when they go hammer and tongs at uh, um, sort of a huge part of the American subsidy of American manufacturing is the military. Mm. Yeah, they overdo absolutely. it. I mean, they do it very badly, but the yeah. gigantic amount of money going in, uh, we spend as much as you like developing advanced technology mm. as weapons for the DARPA project, and if they turn up as commercial uh, later on, then that's fine by us. Well, that's a huge implicit subsidy of American industry. So, yeah, of course, if, you, if, if everyone's producing stuff domestically, we don't care, do we, if one industry is being subsidised domestically for their... For, it's only when you're looking at international trade that that becomes a, a concern, I guess. Yeah. But the, but can, you've got to be a certain size for all of this. I mean, that may be the UK... Yeah, that be, is an issue, yeah. yeah. So the yeah. Solomon Islands... You, you've got to have economies... For example, yeah. you know... It's Can't got, just own car industry, forget it. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. and they've got heavy tariffs. Actually, one of the, you know, 30% uh, is the average import tariff into the into the Solomon Islands. It's a, you know, it's a pretty poor economy. There's no way, even with those tariffs, that they're going to have that domestic uh, industry. They're going to have to import, uh, and those tariffs are just making things more expensive for people, presumably. Yeah, I mean, the whole often a reason for the high tariffs in a country like that is it's another it's an easy way of guaranteeing you get your tax, tax revenue. Yeah, to finance finance the government's local operations, or to, uh, you know, they they uh, they're, they're never going to be monetary sovereigns. They're always going to be recipients. It's just too small and you simply can't talk about major industry. They do have to specialise in what they can do that somebody else can't uh, if they're going to have any importing of goods whatsoever. So you do have the issues of economies of scale. But once you've got a scale big enough to support one and preferably two factories uh, in a in a you know, particular industry, that's really all you need in terms of competition and spurring one company to try to out to leapfrog over the other. Um, so the economies of scale are a vital start. It's a major reason behind the formation of the EU. Mm. 
Yeah, well, it's a trading block. So, I mean, it makes sense if you get a bunch of small countries. Now, you don't like the EU very much. And, you know, I think as a as a trading block, it's a, I think you do too, as a trading block, it makes a great deal of sense. So the EU it becomes, make a, sense, yeah. it becomes a domestic economy. So maybe we do drive German cars. We just don't drive Japanese or, well, who would drive an American car anyway? But so that sort of makes sense. Mm. And the Solomon Islands could form. Except a Tesla. <laughs> Except a Tesla, of course, absolutely. Well, there's a the thing you see. So would you say, well, okay, we should have hefty tariffs on, on Teslas until somebody produces something locally that's just as good? I want a Tesla, no, um, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so do I. I mean, I'm going to buy one of the damn things if I can. Uh, yeah, you know, if I get the pleasure of buying another vehicle, <laughs> your money well, at work, I mean, folks. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, no, the, I, it, 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 this is one of those crazy cases where one particular firm has led the market dramatically and is likely to remain in that leadership position for an enormous length of time. Right. Um, but you don't want to stop would, that happening, you would, do you? Surely. No, you don't. I mean, and that's the, it's, it's one of the few times I can look at what's happening and saying there's incredible innovation that's gone on here and the reason they're ahead of the all the other... They've come in from outside the car uh, market to begin with. Uh, they've innovated uh, on the battery technology and... The, the computer controlling and everything else. Right. Uh, I, I have friends who claim they're going to be done in by Google producing its own uh, self-navigating car. Uh, the, 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 but, you know, I'll, I'll wait and see whether that actually happens. But you, you, but you that's are the sort of arguing, I want to but, see right, but you are arguing against yourself a little bit here because they're doing that yeah, with a view one, to taking yeah. over the world in terms of uh, the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe in terms of economies of scale to begin with, given what you want in terms of battery technology and so on, maybe there is only room for one or two manufacturers of any scale. Uh, again, it's the economies of scale there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm... I, again, as I said, the main thing in favour of capitalism is that it spurs innovation. What we've done in, in terms of the so-called reforms to capitalism driven by mainstream economic thinking is we've actually pushed specialisation rather than innovation. Mm. So I'd rather reorient it. Uh, in, in most cases, we, you don't get something where there's such an enormous advantage for a single company and where there is only one major innovator. I mean, I saw a piece from Dyson coming out uh, Dyson apparently has abandoned his attempts to produce an electric vehicle yeah. because the cost was going to be on the order of $200,000 per car. Uh, and there's, you just thought, forget it, we can't be profitable and bang, shut the venture down. So we only have one uh, dramatic innovator there and I don't want to stop it. So in that case, I. but then again, what Musk, Musk has been doing is establishing a mega factory in China, uh, which I expect will be used to export to the Asian region and then you might get one in Europe as well. Uh, but that particular case, there's one company innovating that is so far ahead of the rest that there is only one firm, and you, you know, you, you I find by buying a, a Tesla, I'd be importing it. You are such an Elon Musk fanboy. You are even prepared to uh, lose your whole argument on on the basis of this one this yeah. this one company, because there will be others on doing, that scale of innovation. Though, that, yeah. yeah, and there will be other companies that innovate. But I, I guess what we what we are saying is though that. Uh, but generally speaking, you've got to try and innovate by having competition domestically, uh, and yeah. and and get as wide a broader variety of industries within your within your country or within your trading block, because that's where great ideas are going to come from, uh, and you, you you're going to also going to keep people working within those economies as well. But it sounds like the 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 the, the, the big thing to stop is foreign investment in all of this. If you can't, and if you do we need foreign investment at all? I mean, if, if governments can create money and uh, money is needed, 
surely just let it happen. Well, again, it comes back to the innovation question. Where is the innovation coming from? Uh, do you have something which is you know, brand new, nobody else has, and therefore uh, do you want that to be improved? Uh, you know, do you, you want a large market for it? You, you don't want to have your own industries that depend upon that particular technology and input having a handicap. Mm. So there are some cases where you do have to have you know, a single manufacturer somewhere in the world exporting to everybody else, um, a single innovation like Facebook, as much as I loathe the damn thing, uh, being the, the dominant form of, of, of you know, channel social media. Uh, so there are, it, it, again, my driving force is promoting innovation. And, uh, but but often know. the argument the argument for protect, protectionism against protectionism I should say is that it doesn't allow for innovation because you are protecting the the economy you're not facing up to to international competition you just allow you to you know, have to make do with whatever we can bodge up locally. Well, that's that was the case of the way people were talking about Japan protecting its car industry. But what they've mm. done is, of course, they imported Deming. Um, they, you know, I've forgotten Deming's first name, but the the uh, industrialist who developed the whole idea of not just of just in time, which has yep. got its got its own problems, particularly in the, the current circumstances, but also the idea of quality management, where you simply try to improve the quality by reducing the variation in manufacturing over time. So rather than having a, a production line that simply chunders onto the workers just a cog in the whole wheel, in a Deming production line, when it starts, every worker can stop the production line. Uh, until such time as a problem with their, their part of it is ironed out. And then you continue you know, iron out each problem and this, the production line stops less and less frequently. You get a higher throughput, you get higher quality, quantity and higher quality. Now, the Japanese adopted that. The Americans didn't think they needed. Well, look at the result. Um, so, again, that's a case where protectionism spurred a form of innovation amongst Japanese manufacturers and that led ultimately to them being competitive far more competitive with the Americans than the Americans ever thought would ever happen. So, um, you know, it's the protection can spur innovation, not stop it. It's a question of how do you go about making sure that happens. America did it in the 19th century, um, Japan, Korea, uh, Germany in the 20th, um, and that's the real source of success rather than specialisation and trade. And we are starting to see more innovation coming out of China as well. I mean, China is not just a let's copy it and sell it cheap. They are starting to innovate. But also, what about uh, if you, you look at countries where you would have thought protectionism, and for a while they were pursuing protectionism, is India. I mean, after they gained independence in the, the, the 1947, mm. they were pretty much going down the road of protectionism, weren't they? It wasn't until the, they called on the, the IMF or the IMF had to bail them out in the 1990s, and they did what they always do, of course, which is to say, well, if we're going to bail you out, you've got to open yourselves up to, to more mm. international trade. Uh, so that stymied that idea. But, I mean, they tried to pursue it. And if you look anywhere else in the world, I mean, they're smart people, big population. Uh, you would have thought they had every opportunity to have an almost self-contained economy. Yeah, I think the trouble there comes down more to the landlord side of things and the enormous wealth generated mm. out of the income disparities and you know the, the, the landed wealth. I think uh, you know, development uh, is is a topic I used to, to do a lot of work on thirty or forty years ago. I feel very yeah. Uh, but yeah, India has been a disaster on that front. It's got some successful industries, but. Um, I think, again, I think it might come down to the cheapness of the labour. When it's that cheap, you don't get the level of innovation. You still exploit the cheap labour. Um, so what, you- what, should a, what should a country like the UK do then? Should they be saying, well, okay, we need to, uh, we need to create more industries domestically. We need to 
invest. Maybe HS2 is a good idea. We need more inf- infrastructure. Uh, and we introduce tariffs as well to try and uh, block out uh, the uh, cheaper imports and to, to try and get our industrial base back. Getting our industrial base back does sound like you're sort of harping back to something that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, that's partly the trouble. I mean, if you look at the level of uh, manufacturing as a percentage of the UK's industry back in 1980, it was about 20%. Now it's down to about 10 Germany remained at about 20% all the way through. So you know, there's been deindustrialization, And, of course, Britain was the, was the heart of the Industrial Revolution. Um, you mm. know, so you're trying to get back what you've, what you've yep. destroyed um, ever since the days of Cecil Rhodes and the focus on colonialism rather than domestic investment. So uh, it's rather a tragic, tragic argument. How do, you, how do you get back to being where you were um, in, in 1770? Well, that was my question to you. What's the answer? <laughs> uh, I, I think the one, one thing that's going to happen, uh, particularly as we, as we, in the environmental crisis we're coming into now, I think the whole idea of outsourced production and long supply chains is gone. Uh, and you then have mm. to, if you're going to have, have reduction, you have to specialise in what's absolutely essential. Uh, uh, and in that case, Britain has to do a lot about food manufacturing, and they can learn a lot from the Netherlands, by the way, about how to be able to mm. be, be, be food sufficient in a small country uh, with an in, inappropriate climate and still be successful on that front. I think it's more those yeah, well, innovations that matter. Yeah, a vast quantity of food in the UK actually comes from the Netherlands. They import a great deal from the Netherlands. So, oh, yeah, uh, but Part of the reason I moved to the Netherlands uh, was that, uh, you know, it, I wanted to be somewhere that had some insurance against the worst of global warming, and I expect some of that damage to come through the food supply. And the Netherlands is the world's second largest food exporter, which mm. shows the extent to which they've managed to uh, industrialise food production, uh, reduce their in- insecticide intake, reduce their fertiliser intake, all the things that are going to be very, very fragile in the next decade, they've managed to, to uh, contain. The UK, on the other hand, imports something of the order of 30% of its food and yeah. has antiquated food production systems. I'd be saying, let's let's get Britain's food manufacturing up to the standards of the Netherlands. That would be... Um, and do whatever's necessary to make that feasible. Um, so maybe a bit of protectionism or a bit of a, a spur to local um, uh, innovators in food production uh, would be a sensible thing for the UK. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I cycle through mile after mile of country lanes. Uh, the, the English countryside is full of farmers' fields. You know, it's not all urban uh, population. So there's uh, certainly huge, huge potential for that, you would have thought. But you were looking at actual plants rather than looking at uh, greenhouses. If you go for a same trip in in um, Netherlands, it's less exciting because <laughs> uh, it's, you're surrounded by greenhouses, but it's much more effective in producing food. Yeah, and then energy is the other element, obviously, becoming self-sufficient, wholly self-sufficient in renewable energy and all that sort of thing are all new opportunities. So it seems like we're, what we're talking about just in... Uh, in wrapping all of this up is we're looking at sort of like v- various tiers aren't we where there will be certain industries which uh which perhaps need to be to be global some of that could be i mean to my earlier point in in producing uh capital goods to to manufacture uh maybe some of that needs an, an international market because producing something domestically mm-hmm. and producing the machinery to produce that domestically might be a big ask uh, but mm. and then there'll be some innovations like in in cars or new technologies uh, that that might need to go global. But though you'll you'll get down to a certain level within industry, and then that's when you should be saying, well, okay, we need to produce more of this locally, 
maybe tariffs will be needed. Perhaps they won't be. Perhaps just the cost of transporting stuff will become so expensive that it just happens by na- just naturally. And that's what I think it's going to happen with global warming. And there's things they're saying we simply can't afford the level of uh, of shipping we've had for the last thirty or forty years. Um, how do we have less shipping means more domestic production? Uh, which would mean a trade deal with the United States would be a crazy idea right now <laughs> for the UK. And dealing with the United States is a crazy idea right now. <laughs> dealing with crazy people is a mm. crazy idea. Mm. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you, Steve. Catch you again very soon. Thank you. Okay, mate. Bye. And that's it for this time on the Debunking Economics podcast. This one was a a bit of a freebie, so you could hear it all in full. Normally, if you want to hear the full version, you need to become a subscriber at debunkingeconomics.com or you need to become a supporter of Steve Keen on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Prof Steve Keen to hear this and 200 or so other episodes of the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll catch you again very soon. Thanks for listening. 